In the cult classic film, The Princess Bride, we meet a distraught and drunken Spaniard named Inigo Montoya. He's distraught because the smartest man he knows or knew has died. And the strongest man he knew was defeated in a contest, and for all he knows, he has disappeared. Inigo was the most skilled of these three men. But he's pondering his life and wondering what in the world he can do without the smarts and without the strength of the other two men. How is he ever going to be able to fulfill his mission to exact revenge upon the man that killed his father? And so we find him in a drunken stupor at a place where he was told to go. He cries out in desperation to the spirit of his dead friend and leader. I am waiting for you, Vicini. You told me to go back to the beginning. And so I have, and this is where I am, and this is where I'll stay. I will not be moved. And after a skirmish with a guard, he encounters his friend. But he reminds the friend and the viewer that when the job has gone wrong, you go back to the beginning. And you find us today at the beginning of a new series that will take us through the course of this year. And we're going back to the beginning, not because something has gone wrong, but because we don't want things to go wrong. We're going back to the beginning because it's at the beginning that you get your instructions, that you learn about your destination. And so we're going back to the beginning today to go back to the beginning of the story that God has told us, that he's invited us to be a part of. And so we go to the book of Genesis The beginning of the one story in the Bible that takes place from one end of the Bible to the other. It's a story that takes us from one place to another. It moves us from the start to the finish. It carries us from the old heavens and earth all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. It's a story that moves from darkness and disorder to light and to life. It's a story that involves you and me and God and everyone else who has ever walked on the face of the earth. But it's mainly a story about God. The protagonist of this big story is the true and living God. And the antagonist is the devil and we are the love interests, the supporting cast, the confidants, those who get to live within the story. And we're invited to live with God in this story. So it's a story that involves us, but it's a story about God and who God is and what God does. And so in this series, we are going to focus on God. We're going to focus on God and who he is and what he does and why it matters. And what we'll see along the way is that this big story that I'm talking about is told by means of many, many smaller stories within this big story. So along the way, you're going to see and hear things that you already know. You're also going to see and hear things that you don't yet know. You're going to come across stories that are familiar to you, like the one that we're going to hear today. 
But you're also going to discover that even the stories you think you know the best hold secrets that you have not yet discovered. That there are mysteries in those words and mysteries in these pages that are waiting to be discovered. And they're not hidden in some difficult place to find. They are hiding in plain sight. But in order for us to see them, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the help of the community of God's people. We need the help of growth and grace. And as we do that, we see and discover more and more of these mysteries. Many, many years ago, in the beginning of my ministry, these were in the days when the internet was simply a twinkle in Al Gore's eye, when it was all dial-up and you could only call to a few places and there wasn't a lot going on on the internet. And so if you wanted to challenge yourself and come across new ideas and be stretched, you would turn to PBS. And on PBS in those days, public broadcasting station, there was a series produced by Bill Moyers called Genesis, A Living Conversation. And for 10 weeks, scholars and journalists and musicians and artists and all kinds of people would gather and have a roundtable discussion over the book of Genesis. They were to read a section and then come back and talk about it. And they were filtering these things through their experience, through their expertise. The interesting thing about it is they were striving, so far as I could tell, they were striving to take the story as God's story, whoever they thought God was or was not. And they were trying to make the story part of their stories, to see how it all fit together. And I admired that, and I appreciated what they were trying to do. But over the years, as I've reflected back on that conversation and revisited it many times, I realized that what was missing in that story, one thing that was missing was the Lord Jesus Christ. They never asked the question, what does this story have to do with Jesus? They were trying to unlock mysteries in the text that they couldn't unlock because they didn't have Christ. The other part of this is that they misread the story in this way. Is they were asking, how can we make this story a part of our lives, a part of our stories? When what they should have been asking was, how do we make our stories a part of the big story of God? And so I hope you see and hear that what Zach and I have been trying to do for the last several years and what we're trying to do now with this series is to ask the question, what does this story have to do with Jesus and what do your stories have to do with the big story of God? And for the next several months, we're going to answer that in a lot of different ways. The book of Genesis is important. It's foundational uh, to the Christian faith. It's actually foundational to the mission and ministry of RPC. If you've been around here at least for the last couple of years or so, and you've been paying attention, you've probably heard Zach and I reference or preach from or read from the book of Genesis many, many times. Why? We keep going back to the beginning. And we're going back to the beginning not because something has gone wrong. We're going back to the beginning because we don't want things to go wrong. We want to make sure that we get the story straight, and so we go back to Genesis again and again to do that. And today is no different. Genesis is crucial to the Christian life. 
And I think it, since it's so crucial and we understand that, you'll come across Christians who love to discuss and debate all kinds of details about this story, about Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't fault them for that. I've engaged in that myself. But you'll hear people get into discussions about time frames and lengths of days and frameworks and gaps and all kinds of theories about what's happening in this passage. And I don't begrudge people the need to have those discussions. They're very important discussions. But here's my concern after doing this for many years now. My concern is that what gets lost in all of those discussions and debates over the when and the what and the how of creation are the deeper concerns over the who and the why God created it all in the first place. And I want to draw your attention to that part today, to these deeper concerns. You notice that when the story opens, the Holy Spirit simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the skies and the land. God is the one who is acting in the beginning to produce something, to generate something, to create and establish a cosmos. God is the one who does that. Genesis tells us the same thing that it told the peoples of the ancient Near East. Namely, that our God is the true and living God. That our God is different than your gods. That our God is better than your gods. And so the book of Genesis arrives on the scene pushing against the false gods and the false myths and the false stories of origins and creation. Pushing back against that to say, no, our God does something your gods do not do. Our God calls things that are not as though they were. He forms and he fills. He creates something out of nothing. He brings order to chaos. He brings darkness. He turns darkness to light and speaks words of life into emptiness. He draws near to dwell with us. He wants to be with us and to be near us. You notice when you read Genesis 1 and 2 that the story is not told in a cold, scientific, nor a somber or clinical tone. It is told in colorful, artistic, and joyful, poetic tones. It's a thing of beauty. Scholars who are of the faith and not of the faith recognize the, the literary artistry of this section of Genesis. They're impressed and amazed by what the author and the Holy Spirit have produced for us here. Carefully crafted language to highlight Something about who God is and what God is doing in the world. C.S. Lewis does a masterful job of depicting this aspect of the creation story in his children's book, The Last Battle. It's a part of the Narnia series. The Last Battle. And there's a section in that story that describes Aslan the lion as the creator of Narnia. And we learn about the origins of Narnia and how this world came about and it's described in this way, that Aslan the lion created by singing a song. And it's a song that starts out with a low rumble, a low tone, and then it gets louder and louder, and it gets more fast-paced, and it begins to change along the way. It's a story that captivates the hearer. It says, when you listen to this song, you heard the things the lion was making up in his head, and when you looked around, you saw them with your eyes. 
The song is described as a wild tune that made you want to run and jump and climb and shout. At one point it says it made you want to rush up to other people and you didn't know if you wanted to hug them or to fight them. It stirred people to hear the song of creation. And I fear that either the song has become so familiar to us or we've grown weary of all the debates and discussions that we have lost the tune of creation so that we're no longer stirred by this story. We don't know if we should jump and climb and shout and leap for joy or if we should just fall asleep. And my hope and prayer is that you will be stirred by the song again, that you'll be stirred by the one who moves near to create, to bring life. This is what we see and hear in Genesis 1 as God creates the world and everything in it simply by speaking it into existence. And he does so with the power of his word. There's a movement here from the universal to the particulars. There's a movement here from the creator to the creatures, from the heavens and the earth to light and plants and stars and creatures and birds and seasons and days and years and fishes and creeping things. There's a movement from God to man. There's a lot going on in this story. And day after day, as God looks upon all the things that he has made, He looks upon all the diversity and variety and all the creativity that is flowing out of who he is. He declares it all to be good. I know it's hard for us to see the world as good. The world is full of so much brokenness. It's full of so much damage and ruin. It's full of so many things that are dead and cracked. I mean, the world is a mess. But if you could go back to this part of the story before we broke the world, before we ruined the world, God said, oh, it's good. Look how good it is. The creation's good. Hans Borsma puts it this way, that the external world is beautiful because it participates in the eternal word of God. So this temporal world that God has made is beautiful. It's wonderful. Why? Because it's tied to who God is, and what God is doing with his eternal word. And not simply the spoken word of God. That's one part of it. But the word of God that is to be made flesh somewhere down the line in the story. Since creation is tied to who God is and what God says, it makes creation beautiful. Now, you have probably heard or maybe even have used the phrase... He cannot see the forest for the trees. And what we mean by that is that someone is so fixated on the particulars that they can't see the universal. They're so fixated or locked in to specific details that they miss the spectacular panorama. It would be like this. Let's say that you go to the Grand Canyon. And when you get to the Grand Canyon, all you can do is look at one rock right in front of you, a pebble. You're looking at that one rock, and everyone else is saying, wow, look at the colors, look at the scope, look at all of this. Can you believe it? And you're just looking at one rock saying, I don't, it's not that big of a deal to me. That's what it means to see the forest and, and, uh, and miss the trees, or to see the trees and miss the forest. That's what it means. 
is you get locked on the tiny details of things and you miss the overall picture. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is doing this kind of thing for us. It's giving us this panoramic vision of who God is and what God is doing in creating the world. And it's telling us, it's telling us that God made the whole wide world. It does tell us that. But it tells us more than that. It doesn't tell us less than that. It tells us more than that. It tells us the story of why God made the world. And that's my interest today. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Why? How would you fill in that blank? Well, if you are keen on your Reformed theology, you will say, for his glory and for our good. And people around you will go, hey, good answer. (laughs) Not bad. And that's true, true enough. But it's more than that, more specific than that. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them because he wanted to establish a place in which he could dwell with man. He wanted to move into our neighborhood. But in order to do that, he had to create the neighborhood first and then make us and put us in the neighborhood and say, now I'm moving in. That's the story of Genesis 1 and 2. It's actually the story of the Bible. God working, striving, laboring, to move near to his people, to be close to us. That's what he wants. And that's what you see in Genesis. And so the way God does this, you can follow it step by step through the text. First, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. That's an all-encompassing statement. It's a massive statement. And the Holy Spirit doesn't even unpack all the details of that for us because he said all that he wants to say with that. Then he narrows the scope down a little bit. You look at some of the days and what's happening in those days. On the sixth day, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now think about what's happening here. I just said a few minutes ago that everything God created, he just spoke his word and it came into existence by the power of his word. And yet here we see God doing something different. God is working with existing material, the dust of the ground. And he, he acts upon that. He begins to work in it to do what? To make man. This is the most intimate thing that God creates up to this point in the story. It's the thing that God takes very uh, great care in doing. He doesn't just speak man into existence. He draws near to the dust and begins to form the dust into a man. Form the man or form the dust into the image and the likeness of God. It's not image and likeness just yet, but it's getting there. And then he leans over and he breathes into this dust ball, this clay pot, the breath of his life. And now this thing has become a living being. It's become man made in the image and likeness of God. This is the special creation of man. And it's so important for us to go back to the beginning and understand this because we live in a time in which people say men are the product of chance. People just happened. We don't know how we got here. We're accidents, cosmic accidents. We sort of came out of some primordial soup or something, and here we are. And if you think in that way, then you end up losing your dignity. You end up losing who you are as an image bearer. 
So it's very important for you guys to understand who you are as image bearers, that you matter to God. He took great purpose and pains to make you in his image and likeness. So you're not an accident, and you're not just uh, an act of circumstance, but you're an act of God's creative power in the world. So God makes man. An interesting thing here is that God shapes him and supplies him with his spirit. So it's not just this material object, but spirit and flesh come together. Body and soul appear in this one that is made in the image and likeness of God. And as we read the scriptures, we learn from the Psalms, for example, that in this act of creation, God was making man just a little bit lower than the angels and making him just a little bit higher than all the other beasts that were from the ground. Adam wasn't the only one that was formed out of the dust of the ground. Read the passage again. You'll see that all of these different kinds of animals were coming out of the earth. The earth was producing them is what the text says. But the thing I want you to see here is that when God made man, male and female, he created them. He crowned them with glory and honor. You're special. You matter. You mean something to God. That's important to remember today. But it's not just that. See, Adam is formed outside of this realm that God is making, outside of this special place. God plants a garden in Eden in the east, and there he sets the man. So he creates man in one place, he makes man, brings him over, and he sets him in this special place called the Garden of Eden. And by all accounts, when you look at the Garden of Eden and you trace out the story of the Bible, which we're going to do this year, don't want to get too far ahead of it, but the thing you'll see is that the the Garden of Eden is created by God as a kind of temple. It's a sacred place that God has decided, here is where I'm going to interact with my image bearer. Here is where I'm going to have communion with my people. Here is where we're going to live life together. And so that place in Eden very much resembles what is going to be known as the tabernacle, the big tent later, and then the temple that's built. And then ultimately, you get all the way to the end of the story, and I'm jumping way ahead now, a little taste of things to come. It's a foretaste, a foreshadow of the temple that God will establish in the new heavens and the new earth, what we call heaven, eternal life, paradise. The seeds of that are seen in the story, and God puts Adam there because that's where he wants to dwell with him. But something's not right. If you're reading the story carefully, you'll see, I mean, along the way, God looks around, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's all good, and then he puts Adam in the garden, he goes, "Uh uh-oh, something ain't good. Something's not good. What's not good? Well, it's not good that the man is alone. It's not good. There's an ache. In Adam's heart, something's missing in his life. He's searching and searching for someone like him, someone that he can share his life with. He can see it in nature all around him. He can see male and female animals lining up, pairing up. But he doesn't have that for himself. And what what does God do with things that are bad? What does God do with things that are broken? He makes them good. He fixes them. And this is what he does for Adam. And the way he does it is in a very peculiar way. We kind of breeze over these stories sometimes, but I want you to think carefully about what's happening in this story. Because what's happening is that God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make 
someone that's suitable for him, someone that matches him, someone that's going to fill up that empty space in his, in his heart, in his life, someone that will take care of that ache and pain. You know that love hurts, right? And this is how it hurt for Adam. As you see in this story, the first wound, the first injury that ever happens in the history of the world. God causes Adam to go to sleep. He's in a deep sleep. The kind that teenagers sleep on Saturday morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. A deep sleep. And he opens him up. He wounds him. It's a shedding of blood. A breaking of bone. He tears him up a little bit. Because he's going to do something that's good for him. He's got to endure this suffering. This pain. This wound. It's the first wound, the first injury, the first bloodshed in the history of the world. It's also the first time that a healing takes place. Because God heals Adam after the surgery. In the first service, I was talking about this, and one of our members, who happens to be an anesthesiologist, came up to me and he said, you missed something here. The most important part of that story is not the surgery. It was the anesthesia that spared Adam all of the pain. (laughs) Put him in a deep sleep. But you see that, the first wound and the first healing. And out of that wound and out of that healing comes what? A woman. The Hebrew says that God built this woman out of the rib. Not just made, not just formed, but he built a woman. So if you thought he took care in making Adam, forming Adam from dust, we're just dirt clods compared to our wives who have been built like a brick house, as the poet said. (laughs) Built a woman. And as we heard earlier in our reading, it was through this shedding of blood that peace comes. It's a hint of the gospel, isn't it? It's through the shedding of blood that peace comes. Peace to Adam's heart. Peace to Adam's life. This is what God does. And he says of Eve, she is very good. Adam is made outside of the Garden of Eden. And he's brought in and set there as God's icon, as God's representative, his likeness and image in the temple. Eve, where was she made? She was made in the garden. That's where Adam was when God performed this surgery. And you know, it's more than a surgery. It's the first sacrifice that's ever made. Where someone says, my life for yours, he lays down his life for his wife. Now, he didn't know that's what he was doing, but that's what happened. And that's how the story shaped his life. So here they are in this cosmic garden temple, a sacred place for God and man to dwell together. What's interesting about this is, again, I mentioned how in the ancient Near East, there were all kinds of creation myths and origin stories, and they had to do with how gods were, the the gods of the uh, Babylonians and others around Israel uh, were being spirited, full of vengeance and strife. They were so unlike the god we worship who is presented to us in Genesis 1. 
And again, this story pushes back against that and says, your gods are gods of destruction. Your gods harm and, and injure people and don't fix them and don't take care of them. Your gods enslave others and mistreat them, but not our God. Look what our God does. Our God loves us. He creates a whole world for us. He makes special places for us to live. In their world, the temples were made by human hands, carved out of stone and lumber, put together. And then they had to fashion the image of their God that popped out of their imagination, and they would set that image that was lifeless and deaf and blind and could not feel, set it in those temples and say, now we're going to worship the gods that we have generated and created out of our image and likeness. And this story pushes against all of that to say, no, our God makes us in his image and likeness. He builds a living temple for us to live in. He invites us to dwell with him. Adam is made here, again, in a special way. And often when we think about Adam, the first man, we think, well, we know about Adam. We know what his mission and purpose was. He was a gardener, right? Just like God was a gardener. And there is some truth to that. Or sometimes we say he's kind of like a zookeeper, wasn't he? Because, you know, he named all the animals and he had to take care of them. Or maybe he was a kind of farmer because he needed to cultivate the land. We know that he was a husband because he got married. He was probably going to become a father because he was supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And all of those things are true, but they actually miss something that the story is telling us about God's mission and purpose for man. What we see embedded in the story is the idea that Adam was ordained by God to be a priest, to be a prophet, and to be a king. He was ordained to be a priest because he's put in this garden temple to work it and to keep it. Literally, to serve and to guard. And that phrase, to serve and to guard, will show up again and again as the priests of Israel are described. This is what they are called to do, to serve and to guard God's holy things at the temple. And so Adam is presented here as a priest. He's also a prophet because God gives him his word. God gives Adam his word, and Adam is to speak God's word into creation. Speak God's word to other people, beginning with his wife, to instruct her in the things of God. This is what God expects of us. This is what he requires. This is what he prohibits. He's to speak God's word. And he's also ordained as a king because he was given dominion over all things and he was sent to rule over all the creatures that the Lord God had made. So what do you see in this story? You see that God's sovereignty establishes man's responsibility. God's sovereignty establishes man's responsibility. And yes, there is a range of liberty that comes along with that. But what I want you to see is that just because God is sovereign over all creation doesn't mean that man gets to be irresponsible and kick back and not engage in creation. No, God invites us to participate with him in his mission in the world. And it began in this garden temple, but it wasn't just to stay there. It began in this garden temple and it's supposed to go out, extend the knowledge of God throughout the earth to bring the glory of God to the ends of the earth, to fill the world with God's knowledge, as it were, as water covers the world. 
And so, this was the mission of Adam. He's a type of Jesus Christ, a foretaste, a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is the archetype. When we read that man was made in the image and likeness of God, we go, what does that mean? Intelligence, feeling, those sorts of things. Now, what it means is that we were made in the image and likeness of Christ. To be prophets, priests, and kings. And that brings us to the question, what in the world does this story have to do with Jesus? God knows the end from the beginning. And he knows the end from the beginning in ways that we don't. He is the author of this story. And unlike some authors who sit down and start writing in a stream of consciousness and they don't exactly know where this story is going, God knows the end from the beginning. And it's actually the end of the story in God's mind that shapes the beginning. God knows the goal for which he's writing this story. Now, we don't always know that. And we can't always follow and track along as well as we would like. But one thing I want to encourage you with is that just as God knows the end from the beginning in ways that we don't, I want you to be encouraged by this, that you know the end from the beginning in ways that your forefathers didn't. The Apostle Peter tells us that when you look at our forefathers, say the first readers of Genesis, the first hearers of Genesis, they didn't know where the story was going. They're trying to piece it together. And Peter says that they were looking intently and with great care to try to figure out the times and the circumstances in which the Christ was going to come and how all of this is going to play out. And they couldn't quite get their minds around it. But now that Christ has come, now that he has shown his light, put his spirit in us, we can go back through the story of the scripture and we can unlock secrets. We can discover mysteries. We can see things that our forefathers didn't. Things that are really and truly there. Things like this. When we ask the question, what does this story have to do with Jesus? Well, the apostles teach us how to read the story, don't they? The apostle John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and... He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. As we heard earlier in our service, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the supreme one over all creation, for by him all things were made. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the center of all reality. He is ground zero of this whole thing. And if you take him out of it, it all blows apart, crumbles down, collapses in on itself. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Now, there are a lot of things we'd like to discuss and debate in Genesis 1 and 2, I'm sure. A lot of, a lot of conversations will continue to happen. But make sure that Christ is at the center of those discussions and debates. 
Make sure that you don't miss the forest for the trees. Make sure that you don't miss the story for all the debates. Genesis 1 and 2 tells the story that we confess in the Nicene Creed. And you might not have thought of the creed as a storytelling creed, but here it is. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So what do we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ? We learn that he is the true and better Adam, the last Adam who came to pick up where Adam fell off. To came to finish the work that Adam failed to do. To bring to completion the project that God had sent his people on mission to accomplish. He came to transform the old heavens and earth into the new heavens and the new earth. As he said in the Gospel of John, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's exactly what he's doing now. What is that place? It is the place of the new creation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.